You know, our culture, and really the whole world for that matter, is in the middle of what's called an existential crisis. An existential crisis. And what I mean is that, is that humanity's panicked efforts to push God to the margin, and even in a sense to bury Him forever, never to return, has thrust man into a crisis about the meaning of existence. Why? Because when you vacuum God out of the center, you lose the very thing that gives all things their deepest significance. When you move God out of the middle, you remove the thing that makes all things make sense. And in so doing, people have dug themselves into a ditch of meaningless and despair. And you can see it. You see it every single day. A secularized people without a sovereign, glorious, triune God at the center. People for whom truth is relative are in a mad scramble to find meaning and significance in a thousand different pursuits. And each one of them as hopeless and bleak as the last. And you see it. Consumerism. Hedonism. Psychology. Narcissism. Feminism. Transgenderism. Wokeism. Social justice. Cultural Marxism. I mean empty and bankrupt and hopeless. Man has feasted on the forbidden fruit of life without God for centuries. And what you are witnessing right now in the news is literally the, the aftermath of the feast. We are living right now in the gloomy tummy ache of a culture engorged on a feast of postmodernism. We're living in the nightmare hangover of a culture drunk on human glory and achievement, which sounds profoundly like the lyrics we sing every single December, doesn't it? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared And the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. When Christ was born. That moment right there when Christ was born. That is literally the deal breaker of the universe. Why? Because the arrival of Jesus Christ literally solves the deepest, darkest dilemmas in human history. The arrival of Jesus Christ fixes the existential crisis. It ends the nightmare. It lifts the curse. It breaks the spell. That is exactly what Advent is, celebrating, remembering that. And yet the thing about Advent is, is that we know the verses. We remember the songs and yet... And yet I fear that Christmas in the Christian church has become kind of predictable. Because every year we ponder Mary and the virgin birth and the shepherds. And we should, we should ponder those things because those things are glorious and real. But what we may not realize is that Advent, which even the world agrees is the most wonderful time of the year, what we may forget is that Advent has its ancient roots in the prophets 
who depicted and predicted the arrival of Jesus Christ to the planet centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet. And the prophets, and in particular the prophet Isaiah, is exactly how we're going to spend Christmas this year at Christ's community. Our Advent, this theme we're calling, From Realms of Glory, the King has come. And every single, the next three sermons that we're going to do for Advent come from the prophet Isaiah, who spoke more about the Messiah than any other prophet in the entire Old Testament, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because in Isaiah's day, the people of Israel and Judah were in total despair. Godlessness, hopelessness, cluelessness filled the land like a plague. All signs seemed to indicate that all of God's promises were about to bounce like a bad check. The God of Israel looked hopeless, cornered, and weak. The God of the nations looked fierce and invincible. The king of Judah was a coward and a fool. And he was on the brink of a political maneuver that had the potential of wiping out the entire country, which would bring all of God's promises crashing to the ground. I'm telling you, these were bleak and dismal days in Israel and Judah. And you see, if you were living in Israel and Judah in that day, you also would be tempted. You also would be tempted to forget who is in charge. What truly matters? What actually satisfies? Where human history is headed and who alone you could trust to save the world? You too would be tempted to forget the happy ever after of a king who would restore the paradise which our first parents lost in the beginning because that is reality. That is where human history is headed. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe you, like Israel, have also forgotten. Maybe you've been enchanted by the fairy tales of a life that doesn't include Christ at the center. Maybe you've been seduced by the romance novels and the science fiction stories that the American dream is, and that, that is found and, and ultimate significance is, is found in a career or family or feelings of accomplishment. Or maybe for you, life feels as bleak as a Shakespeare play where all the characters kill themselves in the end to, to get rid of the problem of pain. And my point is, none of those stories are real. But what is real, what is true, is that Jesus Christ has come. He died for sinners. He conquered the grave. He rules the world. And soon he will come to a planet near you to make everything be the way it ought to be. And so here we go. The, most, the least likely and most appropriate place to spend our Advent this year as a church, the prophet Isaiah. And here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text that Tommy just read, Three features of the God King. Three features of the God King, Jesus Christ, that prove Him to be everything you could possibly need or want forever. That's where we're headed. Three features of the God King that prove Him to be everything you could possibly need or want forever. But you see, here's the catch. Before we see even one of those features you need to know is that one of the things that makes chapter 9 so exhilarating is that the chapter before it is just so depressing. 
Because you see, what chapter 8 predicts is nothing less than the wholesale destruction of the entire country. In fact, about 10 years after this chapter was written, the king of Assyria marches into the northern kingdom of Israel and takes the people into exile as slaves in 722 BC. 10 years after this chapter was written. And about 150 years after this chapter, the Babylon army would invade the southern kingdom of Judah and simply level Jerusalem to the ground in 586 B.C. The people would be ripped from their homes and they'd be taken captive back into Babylon as slaves. And although, although the people do eventually hobble out of Babylon about 70 years later, they do so disillusioned and in total despair. That's what chapter 8 predicts. And that's exactly what happened. And to this day, Israel has never fully recovered. But you need to know is that although that's what chapter 8 predicts, the game is not over here. Because something, chapter 9, something happens. Something changes. The sour note of judgment starts to fade and the sweet melody of sovereign grace begins to play. The gloom of despair slowly evaporates and the sudden warmth of dawn begins to appear just over the horizon. And you can see it in chapter 9, verse 1. Look at the text. Isaiah says, but there will be no more gloom to her who had anguish. When he, in the former times, when he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But in the latter days, he will make it glorious. What will he make glorious? The way of the sea, the opposite side of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or the Gentiles. And we read a text like this, we're like, what? What is he saying? I mean, it sounds garbled and unintelligible. Isaiah, what are you talking about? Well, what he is talking about, get this, is the northern kingdom of Israel. The worst of the two kingdoms, by the way. And he's pointing to a time in the far distant future ahead in time when God would intervene and he would take the train wreck of Israel and he would fill it once again with his glory. Meaning his glory again would shine in the land. Redemption would come. Restoration would be accomplished. And notice that Isaiah talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That doesn't mean squat to us. But it should, because it really meant something to them. See, these were the two most northern tribes in Israel. And, and, and they were the worst of the bunch. They were the most liberal. They were the first to compromise. They were the ones most easily influenced by the pagan nations. They were the first to be invaded by enemies. And Isaiah says that there, even there, even in Zebulun and Naphtali, the armpit of Israel, one day God will display His glory. And notice what He calls that area at the end of verse 1. He calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee. Glory would come to Galilee. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Because it should. The question is, what does that even mean? We'll look at verse 2. Still talking about the northern kingdom. Still talking about Galilee. Isaiah says, the people who walk in the darkness will see a great light. 
Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine upon them. Glory and light in Galilee. Isaiah, what are you talking about? Not what. Who. Who are you talking about? Because when when Isaiah talks about light, you know that he is not talking about photon particles or electromagnetic radiation, but he is referring to a person, to a divine redeemer who will be and is the light. Because get this, 700 years later when Jesus Christ is in Galilee, Matthew chapter 4 tells us that he went to two tribes in particular to proclaim the kingdom. And guess what two tribes he went to? You got it. Zebulun and Naphtali. And as Matthew watches this scene unfold, no doubt he begins to think this looks really familiar. And guess what Old Testament text he quotes from? Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Why? Because he sees in Christ the very fulfillment of this prediction. Listen to what Matthew says in chapter 4. Jesus departed into Galilee. And after leaving Nazareth, he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? In order that the word through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Did you see the implication of what Isaiah is doing here? These two tribes were the lower class, the riffraff of the nation. And in the minds of every Jew living south of these two tribes, they were the ones who least deserved deliverance by the Messiah. And yet that is exactly the point. Because what is it called when God intervenes in the life of undeserving people? What is it called... When God intervenes in people's lives and gives them what they least deserve to save them from what they most deserve. What is that called? It's called grace. It's called grace. That's exactly what this is. The point is it was an act of grace to begin in Galilee. It was a mercy to begin in the slums of Israel and the red light district of spiritual prostitution. And so when Christ launched his ministry in Galilee, he was making a statement. And the statement that he made was, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And maybe... It is a possibility that maybe some of you have grown cold and distant and hopeless just like the northern kingdom, just like Zebulun and Naphtali. And maybe, maybe you, maybe people at home, maybe here in this room, maybe you know people that you have drifted so far out to sea that you don't know if there's any way that you can come back. It's too far gone. Just like Zebulun and Naphtali, that's how they felt. It's over. We're apostate. We're too far gone. And I don't even know if I care anymore. And yet the message from the text is, it's not too late. The light has come. The light has arrived. Jesus Christ has arrived. And he contains in himself the solution for every dilemma of life and the soul. Because notice where Isaiah goes then in verse 3. 
Because it's interesting, the prophets are not widely known for talking about joy, but that's only because we don't read them nearly close enough. Look what he says. Isaiah turns and speaks to God himself, and look what he says. He says, you will literally increase their nation. You'll increase the nation of Israel. You will make their joy great. They will rejoice before you like the joy in the harvest when they shout for joy in their share of the plunder. I say, what are you saying? It's clear enough. One day, one day joy would come to the land of Israel. He says they'll shout for joy loud at the top of their lungs as if they had discovered a treasure of infinite value. But the question is, what is going to make them shout for joy? What is it exactly that's going to make them so happy? And then you notice verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with the word for. Which means those verses are supplying three reasons that explain the uncontainable joy that's to come in the future. Three reasons that explain the uncontainable joy. Verse 4, the first reason. For uncontainable joy is that one day God is going to crush and destroy all enemies, oppressors, tyrants, and terrorists. Those days are coming. He will crush them and he will obliterate them out of existence. That is a reason for rejoicing. But verse 5, the second reason for joy he supplies is the end of all war, violence, and bloodshed. Look at the text. Isaiah seems to describe combat boots and uniforms covered with blood, thrown into the fire and burned. The point is one day God will cause wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Atomic bombs will be dismantled. Armies will be, will be disbanded. There will be no war. There will be no threats. There will be no fear. Which means, since this has not happened yet, this is going to happen. This is prophecy. This is literally predicting what is literally going to take place in history. And think about it. This text applies to every single person who lives on your street. And every single person on the planet. Because global joy and peace and salvation are literally on God's agenda. But the question becomes then, okay, well does God actually have a plan for how he's going to fulfill these promises? Because it's one thing to say, it's something else to do. I mean, is God writing checks that his power can't cash? I mean, does he have a plan for how he's going to fulfill these promises, or does he not? And he does have a plan. And the fulfillment of that plan is reason number three. And to our surprise, the fulfillment of that plan, the secret weapon of that plan is, is not an army, it's not a politician, it's not a revolution, but instead, it's a gentle, fragile child that quietly enters onto the scene of human history. And you see the child in verse 6. Look at the text. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the dominion will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's the reason. There's the reason. The ultimate 
reason for intense, profound, uncontainable joy coming in the future. When Isaiah says for here, he is supplying the reason for the, for the, the, the basis all of the prophecy to be fulfilled on this reason. And how is it going to happen? How is everything God promised going to be fulfilled? How? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And, and that doesn't sound like much of a reason, but it is. And it's the most important and significant reason on the planet. And what that does is that brings us to the first feature of the God King, which proves him to be everything you could need and want forever. And here it is. Number one, his unprecedented arrival. As the first feature of the God King, his unprecedented arrival. Because, because that is shocking, isn't it? That the Savior of the human, human race, who is clearly eternally God here from the text, that he would not show up to the planet in a cloud of glory or a burning bush. That he wouldn't arrive with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, but rather the infinite God would emerge onto the scene of human history as a helpless little baby that needed his diapers changed. Because it is, it's interesting, isn't it? If you, if you watch the culture closely, you, you'll see that movies and sitcoms and TV shows now have children as the heroes. Have you noticed this? This is, this is a real thing. TV shows and, and movies and sitcoms are filled with, with bumbling dads and manic moms who have to, learn, have to learn the deepest lessons of life from their children. These little pint-sized protagonists who are the wise sages of the family, the, the moral compass of the family. The kids are the heroes. The kids are the geniuses. They are the wise ones. They are the teachers. And that's weird and ridiculous. And this would be weird and ridiculous too. If Genesis 3 hadn't told us that a child would be born from the woman and crush the serpent's head. This would be weird and ridiculous too if 2 Samuel 7 hadn't told us that a son would be born from the line of David and have an eternal kingdom and reign forever. This would be ridiculous if Isaiah 7 hadn't told us two chapters earlier that a virgin would give birth to a baby and that baby would be Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God is with us. It would be ridiculous, but it's not. It's glorious. So you see what Isaiah's just done here. He has just given us a microscopic glimpse into the most profound mystery there is. That God, without ever ceasing for one moment to be fully God, became fully man. That God became what He was not without ever ceasing to be what He always had been forever. In other words, God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. And yet you notice in verse 6, the parallel. Not only would a child be born, but a son would be given. A son would be given. Given. That's not insignificant. You see, his birth, even his birth was a gift. And gift means grace. And grace means we didn't earn it and we didn't deserve it. The birth of Christ was the ultimate expression of sovereign mercy and grace. The greatest gift that God could give was God himself in human flesh. To suffer, to die, 
to rise triumphant, and to rule and to reign forever. And you see it in the text. Look what he says. Look at the shocking news about this child. It says, for a son will be, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And here it is. And the dominion will rest on his shoulders. You know, every parent knows that you don't give to your kids burdens that will crush them. Make them disillusioned and hopeless. You don't do that to little kids. You don't, you don't make toddlers get jobs or load trucks or, or run corporations. But this child is totally different because, this, because Isaiah just told us that this little kid would emerge out of the womb with the power and authority to run the whole planet. This child would literally be born with the weight of the world on his shoulders because that word government or dominion there in the text, it means authority. It means supremacy. It means royal power and sovereignty, which of course points to his deity. And yet notice something very peculiar about the text. The text doesn't actually have an object, does it? Isaiah doesn't actually say over what he will have the dominion. The text doesn't actually say over what it is he will rule. And I think the implication of the text is he will rule everything. He will have dominion over everything. He does have dominion over everything. There's no limit to his dominion. It all belongs to him. Everything is from Him and through Him and to Him, which means every single inch of real estate in the universe is under the absolute undisputed dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single moment of our lives is guided and governed by the Lord Jesus Christ, which means He bears on His shoulders the weight that no one else is able to bear, like running the universe, for instance. And so the question for you this morning is, okay, when you, when you here in your lives, when you are tempted with fear and pressure and concern and anxiety and anger and despair, do you know in those moments what to do? Do you know what to do in those moments? Do you know what faith in Christ looks like in those moments? And I don't ask that question condescendingly because this comes natural to nobody. Do you know how to make the text, the the dominion of Jesus Christ, practical? Because what you must literally do is you must open the text. And you need to look at what it says and you need to ask if what the text says is actually true. For instance, Matthew 28, 18. Does, is that true? Does Christ really have all authority in heaven and on earth? Yes. Ephesians 1, 21. Is that true? Is that true? Does Christ, is Christ really far above all rule? and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Absolutely, it's true. Hebrews 1.3, is that true? Is that true that Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power? Absolutely it is. And Romans 8.28, is this true? 
Is it true that even this moment, of which the outcome seems so uncertain, is even this from His sovereign hand? And will it work out for His glory and for my highest joy? That's exactly what's going to happen. Because the God King, the Son, the child has the dominion. And that brings us to the second feature of the God King. The second feature of the God King, number two, his unrivaled identity. We see his unprecedented arrival. Now we see his unrivaled identity. And I've said this before, I love films about undercover cops. Those are my absolute favorite. To me, there's just something exciting, thrilling, and dramatic about a story about going undercover, risking your life, pretending to be someone you're not, all to thwart and overturn the enemy from the inside out. I mean, that is a fantastic plot for a film. And I think we would all agree that the incarnation, when Jesus Christ came to the planet as a man, I think we would agree that's the ultimate undercover operation. Would you agree? And yet what's different about the incarnation from undercover cops is that when Christ came to the planet, he didn't pretend to be somebody he was not. Rather, when he came as a man, he came to reveal exactly who he is. And Isaiah tells us exactly who he is. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulders. Here it is. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There it is, the identity of the God King. And you notice that the King to come doesn't only have one name, he has four names. And these aren't names in the birth certificate sense of the term. Rather, these are manifestations. These are revelations that that reveal His divine, holy character. These titles, these names prove that all that He is and all that He accomplished is what you were created to need and enjoy forever. And so let's take these names one one at a time because these are the most important names in history. Name number one. Isaiah says that this child to come, that His name will be called Wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. And you know, we, we live, we live in a psychologized, therapeutic age, obsessed with professional help, aren't we? And we have counselors for every occasion. Grief counselors, marriage counselors, family counselors, suicide counselors, anger management uh, counselors. School counselors, career counselors, biblical counselors. And the reason why you have so many is because there's not just one person who has all the answers. But here, finally, is one who does. I mean, we hate know-it-alls, right? We hate them because they don't know it all, but they think they do, and that's what makes them so unhelpful. But here, finally, is a know-it-all who really does know it all. Here, finally, is one who has the answers to everything because he himself is the answer to everything. And the Hebrew text there, the Hebrew literally says that he will be wonder of a counselor. Wonder of a counselor, meaning that his insights will be so powerful and penetrating and insightful and real that it will literally cause us to wonder. It will blow our minds. 
Here, finally, is one who could solve the most tangled dilemmas of the human soul. Here, finally, is one who could solve the deepest dilemmas of life. Here, finally, is a counselor who doesn't just give pills and psychotherapy to mask the pain, but whose very words have life-giving power. And when he shows up, when he shows up, he will have the final right, ultimate solution for everything. Which is the thing of it is, we don't have to wait for the second coming to get access to the infinite wisdom of the wonderful counselor. We don't have to wait until he's physically here as a physical person to get access to the infinite wisdom because you know that right now Jesus Christ mediates his wisdom and power to you in an 800,000 word document called the sacred text of Holy Scripture. The infinite wisdom and power that you need for every dilemma of your life is being funneled down to you right now for your holiness, for your sanctification, for your marriages, for your parenting. It's being funneled down to you right now in the text where he is present and ministers his power and life-changing authority. Things happen when we get the Word of God absorbed into the bloodstream of our soul. Nothing is more powerful than the text accurately handled and humbly applied to our lives. Which brings us to the second name of this Savior child because the Messiah to come who has come and will come again, Isaiah calls Him Mighty God. Mighty God. That's one of the most, if not the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ found in the pages of Scripture. It's because of this text right here that that no one raised their eyebrows when John began his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one batted an eye. When Paul called Christ in Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior. And the reason for that is because of texts like this that call Jesus Christ God. He is God. And think about how deliciously redundant this title is. Isaiah did not have to call him mighty God because to call him God automatically assumes that he is mighty, infinite, sovereign power to accomplish everything predestined before time. And yet to call him mighty Mighty God just puts on the table explicitly that the one in whom we place our trust was not merely some rabbi who did nice things for people, but is the infinite God who spoke galaxies into existence. I've said this before, think about it. When we see Christ in the Gospels changing the molecular structure of water into wine, when we see Him multiplying enough bread and fish to feed a football stadium or walking on water, turning the sea into a sidewalk, controlling hurricane winds with his mind powers, healing diseases from another zip code, raising rotting corpses from their tombs. What we are seeing in that moment is what Isaiah meant when he called him mighty God. And so think, think about how this title applies to your lives right now. You see, as the wonderful counselor, he not only has the ability to diagnose 
the deepest tangled complex issues of your soul, but as mighty God, he alone is able to solve them. I mean, seriously, seriously, name for me the global dilemma for which Jesus Christ is not absolutely sufficient. Name it. Give me the name of one person that you know or that you've heard about, over whom Jesus Christ is not absolutely sovereign. Give me one scenario from your lives that is outside the divine superintendence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Name one. It's a short list, isn't it? In fact, there is no list. Don't you see? A COVID world is a Christ-ruled world. A Joe Biden world is a Christ-governed world. And even in the future when Satan and Antichrist are doing their worst, they will be playing right into the sovereign hands of Jesus Christ. So this Advent, don't, don't let your admiration merely stop at Christ's infancy. Rather, let it explode at his deity because we sing the lyrics every single year. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He is God. Name number three. Isaiah goes on to tell us that the great God King to come is not only wonderful counselor, not only mighty God, but he's also eternal Father. Or Father forever. Or Father of eternity, which sounds weird as good Trinitarians, but the point is not to say that he is the Father He's not God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. No, He is God the Son. Rather, Isaiah's concern, Isaiah's theological agenda here is to point out to us that the child and son to come, who is a wonderful counselor, who is God Himself, that He loves and rules and leads His people like a father. Everything that can and should be said about a father can and must be said about Jesus Christ. The point is, this is not some jack, some distant jack-in-the-beanstalk giant or some ogre upon whose door we have to pound for mercy. You know, this God, this, this son, this king who becomes flesh, becomes one of us, loves and cares for the people that he rules like a father, not Harsh, not a tyrant, not brooding, not unpredictable, but rather kind, accessible, patient, faithful, affectionate, a firm leader who leads with conviction. He died for his people. He liberated his people. He sacrificed for his people. He resurrects his people. He intercedes for his people. And one day he will reign with his people. And so my question for you is now, what are the fears and concerns and burdens and anxieties right now in your life that haunt you with every step? What are those things? What burdens and pressures suffocate you as you drive alone in your car? Or you lay in bed at night 
Because don't you see here how this name of Christ applies? All of the stability and the security we seek in all of our pursuits and in people can only ultimately be found in the unchanging character and affection of the Lord Jesus Christ who loves and leads and guides and governs with infinite sovereign affection like a father. But last and certainly not least, Isaiah says that this child to come is also called, number four, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, which is interesting, isn't it? Because verse 7 goes on to say that he is a king. So what we see here in the text, that he's both prince and he's king, which is kind of like saying he's both the sheriff and the deputy. He's both the president and he is the vice president. As the king, he rules the roost. And as the prince, he is his own second in command. And so what does this mean? What does this mean to be the prince? Well, in the ancient Near East, the prince was the one who dwelt among his people. He's the one who represented his people. He had the job of representing the king to the people and simultaneously representing the people to the king. The prince was the sacred go-between the king and the people that he ruled. And so get this, as the prince, Jesus Christ rules his people and represents his people. As the prince, he is preeminent over his people and he provides for his people. As the king, he is sovereign over his people. And as the prince, he supplies his people with everything they need. But you notice, you notice the little addendum to this title. He's not just a prince. He is the prince of peace. And the cool thing about that word peace is that it's not what you think. It's better than you think. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. Shalom. And in the mind of every Jew, shalom was not some mushy, mystical sentiment based on your feelings. This was not merely a ceasefire, but rather shalom was when God would sovereignly intervene in history and make all things be the way they ought to be. Like seriously, shalom is when every promise God has made will be fulfilled. Shalom is when every loose end of history is tied up. When paradise is restored, when all of the universe is brought back to its divinely, originally intended design and equilibrium, that is shalom. Because some people you know, they like to digitally remaster old films, don't they? Some people like to refurbish old cars. Some people like to flip houses for a living. But you see, when Jesus Christ returns, when the Prince of Peace returns, he is going to supernaturally remaster and renovate and flip the entire planet when he comes. This will be a total global facelift. Not even kidding. When Christ returns to establish his kingdom, he will literally reverse the curse of sin and renovate the planet from the inside out and make all things be the way they ought to be. That is shalom. And you see, that is exactly why our personal sanctification is so important. It connects. It connects. Don't you see, the power of Christ transforming our lives is a sneak preview to what He will do to the entire planet when He comes. 
The global renovation of Jesus Christ begins in the lives of His people. In this redeemed humanity called the church. Don't you see, we radically pursue holiness. Not merely to be good people or to get our names off the naughty list. But we do that as a witness to the world. To tell the world that the only one who can change the world is the God King, Jesus Christ. Speaking of changing the world and flipping the planet, that brings us to the third feature of the God King. The third feature of the God King, number three, his unconquerable kingdom. We've seen his unprecedented arrival. We see his unparalleled identity and we see his unconquerable kingdom. And I know that, I know that Connect the Dots is usually an activity reserved for children, but that's exactly what Isaiah is about to do, but he's not playing games. Why? Because the kinds of dots that Isaiah is about to connect are theological in nature. In fact, they are the most theologically significant in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is because the dots that Isaiah is about to connect are the future eschatological dots of the kingdom itself. And we see it in verse 7. Look at the text. Describing the king and his kingdom, Isaiah says, As for the increase of dominion and to peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from now and literally until eternity, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall accomplish this. You know what Isaiah just did there? He just spoiled the surprise ending of human history. In tiny microscopic, miniature form. He just told us how the world is going to end and how the world is going to end. Rather, how it's going to be reclaimed is with a sovereign, invincible kingdom. And Isaiah gives us five, five conditions of this future global kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is the happy ever after of cosmic significance. This is where all human history is headed. Five conditions of the kingdom. Condition number one, look at verse seven. As Isaiah says, ask for the increase of his dominion and to peace, there will be no end. You know, all the major kingdoms of history over time, they got brittle with age and faded into oblivion, didn't they? The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, even America was not built to last But here finally is a kingdom that will not decrease but only increase over time. Like fine wine, the dominion and peace of the future kingdom of Jesus Christ will only get better with age. But condition number two, condition number two, notice the legacy of his kingdom. The legacy of his kingdom. Because notice the particular throne upon which Jesus Christ will sit. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. I mean, speaking of theological dots, that might be the biggest dot in the whole Bible. Why? Because centuries before this, God promised to David that a descendant from his line would rise up and that he would have an eternal kingdom and he would reign forever, which is exactly what the angel Gabriel announced to Mary. Did he not? Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. A son. And you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. 
and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, here it is, the throne of his father David. And, over his, and, over, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Invincible, eternal, unshakable, unbreakable kingdom. This is the new world order. This is the happy ever after of history. Which brings us to condition number three of the kingdom. Condition number three, the manner of his kingdom. The manner of his kingdom. Because notice, so, so different from every other other empire in history. This one will be established and upheld by two things. With justice and with righteousness. Notice it didn't say with violence and corruption. Notice it didn't say with greed and coercion with scandal and political intrigue, but with justice and righteousness. And here's the thing, that word justice, mishpat in the Hebrew, again, not what you think, it's better than you think. The word literally has the idea of creating order out of chaos. It is to take the hell hole that the planet currently is and literally make it heaven on earth. And justice and righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness literally has the idea of reflecting and displaying what is of infinite value. Righteousness is to supremely value what is supremely valuable. The point is, every strata of society, every level of society, one day will reflect and display the glory of God. Here, finally, is a king who will take no bribe. Here finally is a king in whom there is no corruption, no cover-ups, no dirty secrets, no scandals lurking in the closet. Rather, he will rule the planet with absolute, sovereign, holy perfection. This is the king we have been waiting for. Condition number four. Condition number four of the kingdom. We see the duration of his kingdom. The duration of his kingdom. Look at the text. It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. How long? From now and until eternity. Ad olam. Forever is the idea. Because you think about it, four-year terms and elections and impeachments and assassinations are all ways to get a new leader, right? But you see, the days are coming when all those things will come to an end. Because Isaiah just told us that the day will come when the king, this child to come, will be the last leader and king in history. Because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. Where the first king and his bride lost the planet, the second king, the new king, and his blood-bought bride will rule it, and he will rule it forever and ever and ever, which brings us to condition number five, the fifth condition of the kingdom, the guarantee of the kingdom. The guarantee of the kingdom. Because again, how do we know? How do we know that this is actually going to happen? I mean, come on, Isaiah. This is nice. This is hopeful. This looks good. But how do we know for certain that everything is going to play out exactly like he describes? Because, because political lobbying, protests, and social reform, even voting the right way, will not bring in the kingdom. Only the zeal of Yahweh has that power. That's why he says, 
Kinnat Yahweh Tzavot The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Meaning what? Meaning the raw, unbridled passion of Yahweh for His own glory is, is the head on the chopping block guarantee that everything that He has predestined will come to pass exactly as He has said. This is certain. This is guaranteed. And if you are in Christ, you are on the right side of history. And that's it. That's, that's the plan for history. In bite-sized miniature form to be sure, but nevertheless, that's exactly how this thing is going to go down. And I've said this before, but if you think about it, the entire plan of salvation unfolding in history can be likened to a love story, right? But a love story of cosmic proportions, not boy meets girl, but world meets the God who created it. But the world falls and runs after other lovers, subjecting itself to eternal ruin and destruction. But God, in the end, wins his lover back. How does he do that? By coming as a man, as one of the very people that he created and then slain for sinners. He willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. See, whether you realize this or not, your death is the greatest dilemma of your life. And it is solved. Solved by the one who conquered death. And right this second, Jesus Christ offers to bankrupt penniless sinners full pardon for their sins, the treasure of salvation purchased and paid for in full to those who embrace Jesus Christ as the treasure of their souls, those who file spiritual bankruptcy in repentance and who come to Him for the riches and treasure of eternal salvation. Because what fools are they? What fools are they who for a drop of pleasure will drink a sea of wrath? But you don't have to drink that wrath. Those watching, you don't have to drink that wrath. Because you can have eternal salvation right now paid in full. And the only thing you have to give up to get it are the things that were going to lead to your destruction anyway. Today it's time to yield to the king. So I close with this. I don't know if you've thought about this or if this struck you while reading Isaiah 9. But what I see the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 doing is freeing us. This chapter frees us. It frees us to see that Christmas, that Advent, is not just a vacation, but what it is, is a mission. It's a mission. A mission to, to make it plain in our homes and to the world that Christmas is not the fantastical birthday party for a tribal deity, but the celebration of when God became a man. Isaiah 9 frees us to tell the world with unblushing clarity and conviction that Christ came not to put presents under a tree, but that He entered into the hay and manure of a broken world in desperate need of fixing. Isaiah 9 frees us from being a bunch of Scrooges who complain about tinsel and mistletoe and 
bells and instead it frees us to celebrate all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished for ruined sinners like you and me. Because again, while there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to celebrate Christmas, there's nothing that says we have to do that. If we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's go all the way. And let's be infatuated with Jesus Christ as the all-surpassing center of our lives because that's not only the meaning and goal of Christmas. That's the meaning and goal of life itself. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we marvel at who you are the mystery of who you are. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. God was made manifest in the flesh. We don't know how to make sense out of that. Mystery abounds. Questions abound. And we rejoice. We thrill at the wonder of the incarnation. And Christ, more than that, I pray that you would help us, help us to cling, help us to trust, help us to apply, help us to hope, help us to be anchored in you, help us to cling to you with all that we are, to all that you are. Oh Christ, I pray that you would make ministers of us all, proclaimers of us all, declarers of us all, that we would be people quick to speak in grocery stores, and doing our Christmas shopping, that we would pause and we would be willing to take those moments to declare the gospel, to make people pause for two minutes and listen to the most unashamable proclaimed message in the world. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us to be people to make it plain that this is who you are. We're grateful for this time, Lord. Help us now to sing, to savor, to celebrate who you are. In your mighty name.